Welcome to the Daily Journal podcast for October 7th, 2019, the first Monday in October, which means the Supreme Court has reconvened after its summer recess to resolve our country's most intractable disputes of the moment. This week we're going to be bringing you four podcast episodes previewing the court's latest term, one that's shaping up to be rather consequential, comprising major pending cases related to religion, immigration, guns, civil rights, constitutional order, the environment, criminal law, and quite a bit more. Our handful of preview episodes, each one relating to a different area of law, will get you up to speed on 12 of the court's most significant matters, and a few more if you count the consolidated cases. Today's show will deal with the term's most significant immigration and southern border-related disputes. We'll hear from opposing counsel and Amici arguing over whether the Trump administration's currently enjoined rescission of DACA should stand, whether Kansas's prosecution of unauthorized immigrants using fraudulent social security numbers and job applications is preempted by federal law, and whether surviving family of a young cross-border shooting victim have a constitutional remedy against the Border Patrol officer who fired the shot. On the DACA appeal, we'll hear from Mark Rosenbaum, a public counsel and former longtime chief counsel with the ACLU of Southern California. He represents a group of DACA recipients in the matter. We'll hear then from Professor Josh Blackman from South Texas College of Law, who filed an amicus brief on behalf of the Cato Institute. On the Kansas case, we'll be joined by competing Amici Lou Olowski of the Immigration Reform Law Institute and Kevin Johnson, dean of the UC Davis School of Law. And on the cross-border shooting, constitutional Bivens claim case, we'll hear from Larry Joseph of APA Watch and Professor Gregory Sisk of St. Thomas School of Law. Again, competing Amici in that case. First, just a quick reminder that podcast listeners are encouraged to collect one hour of CLE credit for having tuned into our show. It's very simple to claim. Just go to www.dailyjournal.com, find this podcast there, and take a short true-false test affiliated with it. Once you've done that, one hour of CLE credit can be yours. We greatly appreciate folks going to find those tests and claiming their credit and tendering the not much more than nominal fee to do so that helps us continue to offer this podcast outside of our usual paywall. The first appeal we'll address today is one you've probably heard lots about over the past couple of years, but one the Supreme Court has seemed at least a bit reluctant to hear itself. The Ninth Circuit and two others decided last year that the Trump administration provided an insufficient rationale for ending in 2017 the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, which gave protected immigration status and potential work authorization to certain unauthorized immigrants who crossed the southern border as minors. The Attorney General and Department of Homeland Security Secretary issued fairly cursory memos on the decision to end DACA, saying essentially that in their view the program was unlawful from the beginning. But for support, the memo referred to a Fifth Circuit ruling on a related but different immigration deferral program, somewhat thin legal justification, many have argued. But as the case has worked through the courts, the government and its supporting Amici have offered other bases for finding DACA unlawful, and further contend that even if it was a permissible exercise of executive discretion when it was created by President Obama, the government provided enough explanation for changing its policy once Donald Trump took office. I'm joined now by Mark Rosenbaum, a public counsel here in Los Angeles who represents a group of DACA recipients. In his view, the government's decision to end the deferral program and its explanation for doing so fell far short of the standard mandated by administrative law requirements and was rightly enjoined. Mr. Rosenbaum, welcome to the show. Glad to talk with you. You and a a cohort of formidable lawyers from out here in Southern California represent a group mostly of of DACA recipients whose uh, ability 
at work and, and status has been thrown into jeopardy and in somewhat of limbo over the couple of years this uh, challenge has been has been going on through the courts. The core argument from the challengers to the rescission of the DACA program isn't, it seems, so much that the government can't change that program, can't change the way it, it treats those sorts of folks, but that the way that it did it was insufficiently justified or explained that in order to to change that program, the government need to, needed to offer more of a, a thorough reasoning. I suppose, um, could you flesh out a little bit more that uh, argument that the explanation was uh, insufficient? Well, there was actually no explanation of any substance at all. You're you're certainly right that when a new administration takes over, it is um, free to change policies of its predecessors, whether it's immigration or any other subject matter. In fact, that didn't happen here. In fact, President Trump, like uh, President Obama, initially praised DACA and gave commitments to DACA recipients that the policy was going to remain in place. The president specifically said, that the DACA recipients could, quote, rest easy because it would be the policy of his administration to allow the Dreamers to stay. The head of um, the Department of Human uh, of Homeland Security said that DACA embodied a commitment by the government toward Dreamers. And so for the first seven or eight months of the administration, DACA remained in place. And so it's it's been the policy of two administrations. That changed. That changed abruptly in September. And as you say, when the government changes either its predecessor's policies or its own policies, it can do that, but it can't just turn on a dime. It has to set forth reasons that say to the public and say to um, those individuals who have been the recipients of a particular policy, here are the reasons why. Here's a, quote, reasoned explanation. And furthermore, we have considered the benefits and costs of changing the um of the policy, and here's here's how we came out when we made that calculation. That didn't happen here. What happened in, in September of um, 2017, five years in into the DACA program, is that the Department of Homeland Security issued a brief statement and said that um, this isn't an executive decision. This is not a policy decision. This is not an immigration resources decision. This is not a decision as to how we want to go about enforcing immigration policy. Rather, what the government said in the briefest, most cursory of statements is that um, we our hands are tied by the judiciary, that DACA is illegal, end of story. There was no analysis of that legal argument. In fact, the Office of Legal Counsel to the White House had previously issued a memorandum that said that DACA was legal. That OLC memorandum was never even mentioned in the the cursory statement from the the head of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Ms. Duke. And the argument itself that DACA was illegal was based, on one hand, on an incorrect statement. The, the, the secretary said that a Fifth Circuit decision had um, held that DACA was unconstitutional. That's absolutely not correct. There was no analysis in the Fifth Circuit decision that it was referring to of the constitutionality of DACA. And furthermore, that 
argument that the executive wouldn't have the authority to put DACA into play into uh, effect in the first place is undercut by the fact that this administration has argued vigorously that the president has inherent authority and broad authority in the immigration area. So it really didn't even square with its past positions. But the point was that there was no analysis. It was just an argument seeking to shift accountability to the judiciary. And in terms of the cost and uh, to the 700,000 current recipients who have succeeded as the government had wanted them to as doctors and lawyers and teachers and members of the military, 72% of uh, Fortune 500 companies have um, hired DACA recipients. The estimate from the federal government is that ending DACA would cost $60 billion in lost revenue and eliminate $215 billion from the economy in terms of GDP. None of that was mentioned. None of that was referenced whatsoever. In fact, in in Secretary Duke's announcement, there was no mention whatsoever of what the cost to these individuals, their families, their communities, and the society at large would be from... um, from the ending of the DACA program. So, uh, as I said, there's there's not an issue in this case about whether or not a new policy can be promulgated, but there has to be something more than just a statement that uh, the courts are responsible, the Supreme Court is responsible, responsible, and they're tying our hands. One other question about, about the lawfulness of, of DACA, because it seems like we, uh, the one core argument from the government is that, well, maybe we didn't provide a, a great, thorough, deliberate explanation of the the thought process before announcing this rule, but if the program, in fact, was unlawful, then we don't really need to give any further explanation than that, that we didn't want to continue to persist with the unlawful policy. And even if, I think the argument continues, we might have cited some sort of dubious legal authority for that proposition, a Fifth Circuit ruling regarding a a similar but different program, the fact still might remain DACA is an overstepping of the executive branch's power. Um, So I guess what's the the clearest argument for why it's not, why the executive branch does have the power to create a program like DACA? It's a great point. And you do a good job, a really good job of translating what the government's latest most shifting argument has been. I think there is recognition by anybody who looks at the, at the record here, which is as thin as paper, that there was no substantiation. So the government has shifted its argument to say along the lines, well, we think it's illegal. End of story. We can, we can end the program. The problem with that is that under the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, but more, more significantly, the foundation of an administrative state, the foundation of government, that where decisions are made not by elected officials, but often by bureaucracies, administrators like the Department of Homeland Security, the policy of that law is that when when unelected administrators make decisions, they have to have reasoned explanations. They have to have justification. And what the government is saying in this case for the first time in any case, any administrative law case in the country going back to the promulgation of the APA, what the government is saying is, if we say so, that's it. We don't need any explanation. The fact that our initial legal argument uh, was one that um, relied upon uh, a misstatement of what prior cases had said, in fact, laid out no sort of analysis whatsoever, in fact, did not discuss prior decision-making by lawyers, 
that serve the president of the United States. None of that was discussed. And what the government is saying is, if we say it's illegal, it's illegal. And the problem with that is, if that sort of rationale is permitted to stand, then there is no accountability uh, among administrative agencies all the way up to the Department of, Department of Homeland Security. And what it means is that it can take 700,000 individual lives, young people who came to this country as uh, infants uh, frequently, as minors in all cases, who have played by all the rules, who are not a threat to national security, who have no criminal records of any substance whatsoever, and who have thrived and who have, have caused this uh, society to prosper from their involvement. Government's argument is we don't have to consider that. We don't have to think about that. We don't have to evaluate that. And we don't have to explain that to a public that is widely supportive of the DACA program itself and certainly interested in why the government does what it does. So if that argument were permitted to, to stand, then there would be no accountability when the administrative um, uh, agencies in this country act, no matter how much reliance, no matter what the cost to, to individuals and to the society is. And like I said, there's no case anywhere that has ever said that the government can simply say what we previously did was illegal, end of story, get on with it. Okay, just one last one. The Supreme Court will also be considering um, sort of a, a separate issue that just seems to be a bit of a preliminary one, whether in fact this decision can even be reviewed by the courts. Um, can you tell me a bit about, about that fight? Yes. There are a certain narrow group of cases where where an administrative branch acts like the Department of Homeland Security here. And the government and, and the courts are precluded from reviewing the lawfulness, the basis of those actions. That is a very, very thin group of cases. And they are cases where Congress itself has said that the courts have no reviewing authority or where Congress has said the discretion to change policy, to implement particular policies is relegated exclusively to this agency and the agency doesn't um, have to go to the courts and no one can go to the courts to explore that. In this case, the justification that the Department of Homeland Security is using, that the president administration is using, is that, as you said earlier, that the policy is unlawful. That's not a decision that is exclusively or even primarily resides with the executive branch. In fact, the oldest legal maxim in this country, going back to 1803, comes from Marbury versus Madison that says that it is the duty in the province of the courts to say what the law is. So for the government to say in this case, we're saying DACA is unlawful, but the courts cannot review that judgment essentially arrogates all authority in terms of whether a particular program is legal, whether it's uh, constitutional, not to the judicial branch, but to the executive branch. And just stating that proposition, as any first-year law student would know, is one that doesn't make sense in terms of what the role of the judiciary is. The other important factor to consider is that this is not just ending DACA itself. It's not a new policy itself about ending DACA. It is also a policy that in its reaches would deprive uh, individuals who are, as the, as the law permitted, working, they are prospering, they are entrepreneurs, they're in the military. But uh, what it would also do is undo work authorizations that Congress itself 
has specifically provided can be part and is part of the DACA program. And, and that's another point. That is, this is not the first deferred action program. There, every presidential administration, going all the way back to the Eisenhower administration, has had uh, deferred action programs. The government's argument would be every one of them is, would now be uh, illegal under its argument about the DACA program. But individuals, as in those programs, are in fact working pursuant to lawful work authorization programs. The government by this new policy is terminating those programs. It is removing work authorization from those individuals. And that has historically always been the sort of policy decision that courts can look at in order to determine whether or not they're properly justified. Okay. Uh, Mark Rosenbaum from Public Counsel. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad to talk with you. Thanks for your interest, Brian. Josh Blackman is a professor of law at South Texas College of Law, and he wrote an amicus brief supporting the government in the DACA case. The brief, filed on behalf of the Cato Institute, echoes the government's view that the original DACA program was unlawful, but in the brief, Blackman and his co-author, Ilya Shapiro, do argue the policy was a good idea, just one perhaps Congress should have taken up. He joins me now. Professor Blackman, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you filed an amicus brief uh, in this this appeal along with Ilya Shapiro of Cato, and it's styled in somewhat of a unique and uh, refreshingly sort of candid manner. I, a lot of times you'll see briefs that uh, align their arguments as to law and policy, saying, for instance, in a case like this, DACA is you know unlawful, it's bad law, and you know besides, it's a bad idea, it's bad policy. Here, you say that DACA is is good policy. It's a it's a good idea. It just was enacted in a way that was unlawful. Tell me, I guess a bit about the design behind a brief like that, where you sort of split the uh, law and the policy up and come different ways on it. The Cato Institute has a history of filing briefs in which their legal position is not consistent with their policy position. And I've been on a couple of those briefs. So for example, DAPA was President Obama's deferred action policy for, for certain parents of, of U.S. citizens. Um, in 2016, we filed a brief arguing that DAPA was a good policy that Congress should adopt, but the president didn't have the power to implement it himself. Uh, fast forward to 2019, uh, President Trump has tried to repeal the DACA policy, the other deferred action policy. Um, Cato takes position that DACA is a good policy, uh, which Congress should adopt, uh, but it's not one that the president had the power to implement. And moreover, President Trump, for better or worse, uh, had the authority to repeal that policy. And we went out of our way to highlight an important aspect of Supreme Court briefing. Um, in almost every case, groups who file briefs tend to find that the law supports their policy. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think people tend to uh, uh, adopt a legal vision that more or less comports with their policy preferences. Uh, but I often am on I'm conflicted. I think some policies are very good, but they're illegal, and some policies are fantastic, but they're uh, they're not supported by the law. And what we try to do with this brief was explain that the two are not always the same, and you can support DACA as a policy matter, but conclude that it's not consistent with the Constitution. So then, just to to one piece of that, the idea that DACA may have exceeded the executive power when it was created by President Obama. 
that seems to be sort of a at the core of the government's position here because it flows from maybe that idea that DACA wasn't lawful in the first place, that the rescission of it would necessarily need to be too fulsomely explained or, or justified. Um, so I guess tell me why DACA was not authorized by law to begin with in your view. All right. So there are two questions we have to disentangle. One, was DACA itself lawful? And two, did the President Trump give enough reasons to repeal the policy? I think the answer to both questions is yes. Congress has given the executive branch quite a lot of authority over immigration. But in the context of granting deferred action, that is, this deprioritization of removal and the granting of lawful presence, Congress has not given the President such vast authority over deferred action. It's a term that's not really defined in the U.S. Code, and it's developed mostly through executive branch practice with Congress sort of blessing it. And DACA is not consistent with past grants of deferred action. Generally, deferred action was used for a group of people who had some reasonable prospect of obtaining an adjustment of status in the future. DACA applies to people who do not have any prospect of adjusting their status unless there's some other intervening event. Uh, moreover, the past uses of this deferred action policy have been quite small and narrowly focused, whereas DACA is quite large. I think the best way of reading the immigration code is that Congress has not authorized the president to take this action. Uh, but even if I'm wrong, and even perhaps Congress is ambiguous or it's unclear, uh, it's unquestionable that the president can rescind it. Um, I think the president's uh, uh, justifications to rescind the policy have not been to my satisfaction, but I think he's made enough decisions and enough explanation to which the court should defer to wind down this policy. Getting maybe to to the, the latter piece of that, the justification for the rescission, I mean, it was put forth in, in pretty cursory memos, a couple, I think, from the attorney general and from the department. Um, and one legal basis was citing the, the Texas case regarding DAPA that you mentioned a few minutes ago, a similar policy, but, you know, not the exact same policy. And so the fact that a circuit court found it unlawful is not really binding on, on this law. I mean, that seemed like at the, at the heart of their justification, I think, they gave uh, maybe one or two more in terms of not wanting to maybe field litigation against it. But what's the best argument for why that explanation was good enough? The Attorney General Sessions' memo identified both legal and constitutional defects. The Attorney General said that because the Court of Appeals found the decision was unlawful, we decided to wind down the policy. Um, the lower court said, well, if that's a justification and we think that the Court of Appeals, the Fifth Circuit's wrong, then the, the decision was irrational. I don't think that's the appropriate standard. The attorney general does not need to persuade every single federal judge in the country that his legal judgment is impeccable to justify the decision. I think it's absolutely reasonable to rely on the fact that one court declared a similar policy unlawful. Um, the attorney general also said that there were constitutional defects, and this is something which he did not develop uh, in any depth. But I think at a minimum, that, that, that request suggests that there are problems with delegation, that the Constitution has limits on how Congress can delegate authority to the president. And if the president actually had the power to do this, you'd have some delegation issues. Uh, and I think the lower courts have sort of ignored this argument, which we flagged in our brief. So at a minimum, uh, the way I look at this case is that the AG hasn't maybe persuaded every judge in the country that the decision was correct, but that's two owners of a standard. You're appealing a discretionary policy that didn't need to exist in the first place. I think uh, the executives do more deference in how it uh, justifies the decision to repeal this uh, this policy in the first place. Focusing sort of squarely on the legal question ignores sort of some of 
the um, more policy infused ideas that we've already touched on, but those I think can also bleed back into to legal analysis. So, you know, in terms of figuring out the the costs and benefits of, of rescinding this program, maybe looking at reliance interests that have been created by DACA, you know, uh, the uh, challengers will refer to their 700,000 folks that have sort of redeemed a promise put out by the government and come to rely on it um, that have entwined themselves within the American workforce and the American economy. And so there are definitely costs and reliance interests here that the challengers say weren't really considered. I guess what's the, the best counterargument to that idea? A few points. So as, as a humanitarian matter, there are absolutely people who relied on this. But legally, there was no promise. When the Obama administration announced this, they said it was discretionary. It could be revoked any time. There was no promise. It's, this, 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 is, this is a fiction that, that, that's made up later to, to justify it. And if this argument, in fact, is real, an executive taking legal action, start handing up benefits, and then when the judge says uh, the next administration wants to wind down, well, we have people relying on it. This sort of rationale lets you keep an illegal policy in place indefinitely. I, I don't think that's supported by law. Uh, without a doubt, people have relied on it. But they knew, they knew that going in, that this could be taken away at any time. We had an election where the, the president said, I'm going to get rid of this policies, right? Uh, after the election, the president said, I'm going to wind it down. That's how executive action works. What one president giveth, another can taketh away. Uh, so I feel for the people who, who might lose their status. I sincerely hope that Congress uh, takes some interim action. But the notion that you have to keep an illegal policy in place because people are relying on it, uh, basically allows illegality to extend indefinitely. And just one last one, referencing something you spoke about just a moment ago, the sort of broad presidential authority and, and latitude when it comes to immigration. That's uh, an argument we've heard rehearsed in a lot of the immigration cases, particularly ones that have come through out here in the Ninth Circuit and ones, at least uh, one prominent one that made it to the Supreme Court over President Trump's terms that he has broad power to decide you know, who gets into the country. It sounds like what you're describing in terms of that latitude is that the president might have less of it when it comes to allowing folks that are here to stay as opposed to deciding at the border who gets in 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 the first place? Is that the idea you're getting at? I think that's right. The the executive has far broader powers at the border and for those seeking entry than those who are already here, right? For those who are already here, it's basically Congress's game. For those seeking entry, I think the president has some powers unto himself at least the court has recognized these powers, uh, that supplement congressional power. But for people involved in DACA, there's no constitutional issue that you have the power to grant these deferred action status. It's it's simply a product of domestic law. Okay. Uh, Professor Josh Blackman from South Texas College of Law, thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, before moving to our next guest, let me remind you that our weekly verdicts and settlements section publishes on Friday and includes dozens of recent high-profile trial court dispositions. We bring you those to help you evaluate cases that you might be working on, but if your case recently concluded and you'd like to feature it in that section of our paper, we'd love to include it. Just submit your result. It can be a verdict, a settlement, a granted dispositive motion, an arbitration award, and so on. And submit it to www dailyjournal.com forward slash V and S. V and S spelled out no ampersand. Okay, when Ramiro Garcia used a fraudulent social security number to gain employment at a bonefish grill in Kansas, the state prosecuted and convicted him on identity theft. 
but the Kansas Supreme Court decided that a congressional statutory regime, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, preempted the Kansas law because Congress had intended its legislation to govern the context of unauthorized immigrants seeking employment. So, the state court reasoned, Kansas's prosecution of Garcia interrupted the national government's enforcement of immigration law and policy. Also, that federal statute provides that information on an I-9 form, part of employment applications, is not to be used by states in prosecutions. On appeal, the state says it's simply enforcing a neutral identity theft statute that isn't designed to target immigrants. And the state says the information used in this case was pulled from a different employment application form, a W-4, not the I-9. Joined now by Lou Olowski of the Immigration Reform Law Institute, who filed an amicus brief supporting Kansas. Lou, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting us to talk about this case. Yeah, so, you know, as is not uncommon, the, the two sides of this case here definitely frame it and conceptualize it in you know, pretty importantly different ways, it seems like. So first off the bat, I'd be curious to get sort of the, the framing that you bring to the case and, and put forward in your amicus brief and sort of a, just a brief sum up of how your argument fits into that framing. Yeah, so I think the way we approach this case and the reason it was interesting to us is because it raises the question of whether a state can prosecute people under state law for identity theft. And that's a pretty non-controversial proposition. The answer to that is yes. All 50 states prohibit identity theft. No one is allowed to commit identity theft. But this case worked its way up the appeals process because the criminals in it and in, in these facts are also non-citizens. And so what they did was illegal under both state law and federal law. And this allowed some people to claim that this implicates uh, conflict between state and federal law because both the federal government and the state government are criminalizing the same conduct. And that raises at least the question of, of whether there's a tension there that might prevent the state from enforcing its laws in a way that otherwise it wouldn't be prevented from enforcing. And our position is that at the end of the day, it does not matter that the people who broke state law here are non-citizens. Uh, what matters is that what they did was illegal under, under state law. The state prosecuted them for it. And there's not really a preemption problem here. Uh, to the extent federal law is implicated at all, the result of, of the state prosecuting its identity theft law is totally consistent with federal law, right? So the bottom line uh, of our argument is that states can prosecute people under state law for identity theft. If prosecuting someone for identity theft causes a result that's consistent with federal law, then that's a good thing. That's not a preemption problem. That's not a constitutional problem. So, I mean, the the competing framing put forth by the other side here seems to be more focused on the context of um, unauthorized immigrants seeking employment and less of a uh, focus on the identity theft facet of this case. And, and when looked through more through that lens, there's what seems to be a, a fairly helpful Supreme Court precedent in Arizona versus the U.S., uh, regarding, I think, what folks might recall as the Show Me Your Papers Arizona state law, and that law had itself some different facets, and I think one was affirmed by the Supreme Court, but one that was struck down related to um, immigrants, unauthorized immigrants seeking employment, and, and there's a passage in the case where Justice Kennedy writes that Congress, in this statute we're talking about, the IRCA, made its intention fairly clear that it did not want to criminalize folks like that for seeking or for performing unauthorized work. Um, 
And so I realize it's not on all fours, but why isn't that sort of pretty persuasive um, for the other side here? I don't think it's persuasive for the other side because the IRCA does criminalize committing identity theft in pursuit of employment. The problem in that case, Arizona versus United States, was that the state of Arizona went out of its way to regulate immigration. And when the state of Arizona went out of its way to regulate immigration, then it created conflicts with federal law. It's kind of like when states create sanctuary jurisdictions that undermine federal immigration law. Here, Kansas is not creating any conflict with federal law. Kansas prohibits identity theft, not the employment itself. Uh, the identity theft here is the means to an end. The criminals in this case got in trouble because they committed identity theft, not simply because they were looking for a job. So in Arizona, the state of Arizona made it illegal to go look for a job. Kansas is making it illegal to commit identity theft. And the mere fact that you're looking for a job does not save you from liability under the fact that you committed identity theft in pursuit of that job. That definitely you know, makes sense as a legal argument. It's, it's very clear. I suppose it, it sort of is the case that those two things you know, aren't terribly distinct, that in the context of you know, looking for a job and committing identity theft, they're sort of blended together here because if you're looking for a job, you have to submit in almost you know, all circumstances, this I-9 form. Um, and so, you know, if Congress did create a scheme whereby it's trying to regulate applications by unauthorized immigrants for employment, it seems like it would sort of have considered that, that that might involve submitting these sorts of forms like an I-9 with falsified information, uh, even stolen security, uh, social security numbers. And so the two sort of blend together, but you're saying that it's fair to view them as you know distinct and that... For that reason, for instance, Arizona versus the U.S. doesn't really have much bearing here. Yes. And I think the, the, the framing difference here is some people are focusing on the ends. The goal of, of the criminals in this case was to obtain employment. And that goal is illegal under federal law. But that goal isn't implicated by any of the Kansas laws in this case. The Kansas laws in this case focus exclusively on the means. Kansas law makes it illegal to commit identity theft in pursuit of a benefit. Uh, it just so happens that in this case, that benefit is the employment, which is what allows the criminal's uh, attorneys here to even raise the issue. But but that's that's where the difference in, in the two perspectives uh, lies. What about the, the passage in the IRCA referring to the fact that, referring to information within I-9 documents and saying that that sort of information cannot be used by states for criminal prosecutions. I mean, I understand that the argument here is that there's sort of a, a collection of different forms that are submitted um, by someone like Ramiro Garcia here, and, and I think there are a few other folks um, involved in the action. But there's a handful of documents. One is an I-9 with a falsified social security number or a stolen social security number, but there are all other ones like a W-4, that also contain that information. And so you're pulling, Kansas is pulling information from those documents that aren't specifically referred to in the, the statute. Is that the, the argument? Yeah, the, the criminals in this case stole Social Security numbers and used them on a variety of forms. One of the forms that they used the stolen Social Security numbers on is the I-9 form. And the federal statute that created the I-9 form says that 
information contained or appended to the form can't be used for purposes other than the enforcement of that federal statute. So what Kansas is doing here is it's using as evidence the instances of identity theft that were committed on other forms, other state and federal forms. And in one case, there was also um, a residential lease where the person used this stolen social security number. And the attorneys for the um, identity thieves in this case are arguing that the fact that the stolen social security number appeared on the I-9 operates like a sort of immunity that prevents the state from using anything that was set on the I-9 as evidence against these individuals. And that lends itself to absurd results. So in the Kansas Court of Appeals, uh, the the court f- described it well. They said, uh, just because these identity thieves use the Social Security numbers on the I-9 form as well as on the other forms does not give them a get-out-of-jail-free card for all other illegal uses of the of the form. Instead, it's if the state didn't actually use the I-9, but rather it just used the other instances of identity theft, then the federal statute restricting how a state might use the I-9 is not implicated. Okay, maybe just one last one. Uh, another sort of overall theme in, in the briefs from the other side is that the IRCA, conceived by Congress in, in the mid-1980s, thought that it was best to go after the source of the problem it saw of folks coming across the border to seek employment and thus target employers for you know, employing folks that weren't authorized to work within the United States as opposed to penalizing and, and, and picking off a few folks here and there. And so the sort of spirit of maybe Kansas' application of this law, in, in this instance at least, contravenes that. So there would be sort of an implied preemption issue. What's the counterargument to that? Yeah, there's no implied preemption here because there's no conflict between the state enforcement of its identity theft laws and the intent of Congress in the IRCA or the written provisions of the IRCA. It's it's illegal under federal law to commit fraud on the federal forms. It's illegal under federal law to seek employment if if you're not authorized to do so. And uh, what what Kansas has done here is it's it's enforced its identity theft law, and the consequence of enforcing its identity theft law is that a transaction is being prevented that is illegal under federal law. But Kansas isn't creating some kind of new prohibition that the federal government itself hasn't created. In fact, each instance of identity theft that Kansas has punished here, Kansas has punished with, I think, uh, seven months, seven-month sentences. But the federal government could punish this same identity theft and impose five-year prison sentences for each instance of it. So when federal law is, is more severe over the, the conduct that these uh, identity thieves committed, then it's incredulous to say that there's some kind of preemption problem here when, when the state enforcing a separate law is nonetheless achieving a result that is totally consistent with, with what federal law would achieve too. This reminds me a little bit of the Wendy's slogan, where's the beef? In this case, where's the conflict? Nothing that the identity thieves have done here is actually permitted under federal law. Everything that's being prohibited here by the state is also illegal both under federal statutory law, under the intent of Congress, and even under the enforcement priorities of the federal government. 
So where's the conflict uh, here? It's, it's, it's a stretch to say that there's any kind of implied preemption when the means and the ends used by the state are both consistent with what federal law says. Okay. Uh, Lou Olowski from the Immigration Reform Law Institute. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for um, chatting with me. Kevin Johnson is the Dean of the University of California Davis School of Law and joined an amicus comprising a group of employment and immigration law scholars in support of Ramiro Garcia and others also prosecuted under Kansas's law. This brief contends that at least this application of Kansas's law does run up against a federal immigration statutory regime meant to occupy the field of unauthorized employment enforcement. Also, Johnson's brief argues the I-9 provision is naturally read to also prohibit states from using information from forms like I-9s submitted as part of the employment application as well as here, the W-4. Dean Johnson, thanks for being on our show. Uh, thanks for having me. One uh, key element in this case, as in many, is the the different conceptions of, of the framing that both sides present. On the one side, the side that you are supporting the, the job seekers here, it's a case more about unauthorized employment, whereas Kansas and, and uh, its supporting Amici are suggesting this is really more about identity theft and the, the state's protection against that. Tell me just a bit about uh, the importance of that different framing and, and why you view the lens more of the unauthorized employment lens as, as the right one. Well, as applied in this case, the Kansas Identity Theft Statute is, is being used to regulate unauthorized employment. And uh, it's a broad statute, but as applied uh, to, to Mr. Garcia's case, uh, it's really an attempt to regulate the, the employment of unauthorized immigrants in the workplace. And so what the Kansas Supreme Court did is it struck down the application of the statute as it applied to employment authorization. So it's, you know, Kansas is focusing on the broad intent of the statute. Kansas Supreme Court focused on the narrow application of the statute. And in our amicus brief, we focus on how Kansas law, as applied to unauthorized immigrants, interferes with the U.S. government's uh, power to regulate immigration. Just to, to put a slightly finer point on it, the, the challenge here is really just as in a, an as-applied one, just um, in relation to how this law is being applied to uh, the respondents, in the case of the job seekers, it's not seeking to strike down the whole law altogether, right? Oh, no. Uh, states do have a, a, a rational reason to protect the health, safety, and welfare of its citizens through, through statutes like this identity fraud statute. The only claim here is that as applied to this particular defendant um, who was engaging in this identity fraud to work, uh, the claim it's unconstitutional as applied to this. Um, so sort of zooming into a, a fairly technical difference here in in the case, but it seems like potentially an, an important one, the congressional legislation that um, you and, and your fellow Amici argue sort of controls the field here and that Kansas's law is bumping up against. It, uh, it prohibits states from using 
information provided on an I-9 form you generally provided when folks are applying for a job. And, and Kansas has said in its papers that information here is actually not pulled from an I-9, but, but another form also used when applying for jobs, a, a, a W-4. And so that language from the congressional statute isn't really applicable. What's the, the problem with that argument? Well, that, that is sort of a formalistic approach that doesn't really make a difference. Here, the I-9 is used under federal law to ensure that undocumented immigrants aren't being employed uh, by employers. Uh, here, what we have is information on the I-9 is also in- included in the W-4 in the, the Kansas version of the W-4, the K-4 it's called. And the Kansas law as applied to this case really is kind of an end run uh, around Congress's requirement uh, that the I-9 uh, not be used to, to prosecute employees. So I, I fear that here we kind of have a distinction without a difference. Yeah, it's a different form, but it's the same information, and it's designed to intrude on what the Congress decided uh, it was going to do when it comes to regulating unauthorized employment. Congress created a very comprehensive system for ensuring that undocumented immigrants don't work in the workplace. Uh, it's a delicate balance of a variety of interests. It generally does include penalties on employees, primarily focuses on penalties for employers. And here the, the claim is, uh, yeah, it's a slightly different form, but you're really trying to get the, at the same thing that Congress was trying to comprehensively regulate, and the state can't intrude on federal power. Okay. Uh, one other argument you see in the in the other side's briefs here is that you know to to say the Kansas law sort of bumps up against maybe conflicts is, is a problem as it relates to the federal system that you're describing um, might suggest that it uh, conflicts explicitly with those laws. But the other side's papers sort of argue that both statutes kind of prescribe a similar sort of thing that there is there are criminal penalties provided for in the IRCA for using fraudulent documentation to obtain work authorization Kansas's law is being applied in that same way so both laws sort of do similar things so there's no conflict what's the response to, to that line of argument well Congress in deciding to regulate unauthorized in, in employment in the workplace came up with a a system that does that and that system primarily punishes employers and it it makes states leave that regulation alone. It expressly, in some instances, preempts state laws that try to regulate employment of, of undocumented immigrants. Now, sometimes there may be implicit conflicts uh, or conflicts is applied when state and federal law tries to deal with immigrants. In, in a 2012 case, Arizona versus United States, uh, the court found that the federal government uh, is primarily in charge of admitting and deporting immigrants and enforcing the immigration laws and can do so only to the extent that Congress permits. Here, the claim is that Congress has extensively regulated this area. It's imposed some narrow um, criminal penalties for employee fraud in these documents, uh, and it's entrusted to the federal government uh, the imposition of penalties for violating uh, the, these these laws. Uh, and here, you're having a state that's piling on, in a sense, adding to the punishment that the federal government might might be able to, to impose uh, and imposing new and different burdens that Congress never anticipated, never authorized, uh, and intrude on that federal power to regulate immigration. You mentioned it, it a, a couple of times now that the, the congressional scheme was more designed to 
you know, penalize employers seeking to hire folks that might not have authorization to work in the U.S. and less so trying to to target in individuals. Um, can you just spin that out a little bit further? What's the sort of idea behind wanting to have the enforcement more look towards uh, employers than in individual employees? Well, the the idea basically is that the ability to secure employment is one of the the magnets that brings immigrants, including unauthorized immigrants, to the United States. Uh, and the idea is that if we dry up the jobs made available by employers to undocumented immigrants, that we will attack and, and, and reduce undocumented immigration. The debate in Congress was, well, punishing employers is one thing. Should we also employ, punish employees, undocumented employees? And Congress generally decided that employers were really the center of the problem, Undocumented employees were really, in some ways, victims uh, in this this circumstance, and that the primary enforcement mechanism should be something imposed on employers as opposed to immigrants. It was a a much debated and controversial set of compromises uh, that Congress, you know, saw, uh, and in the end, uh, the primary punishments in the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 were on employers, not employees. It was much debated, uh, contentious at times, and reflected in the final legislation passed by Congress. So it was a critical balance uh, that the court was weighing, and it didn't want to unduly punish employees um, who, who you know, were undocumented and wanted the primary punishment to be on employers. And just one last one. There, there's one other core argument, it seems, in, in the opposing side's Paper Kansas suggests that uh, a ruling here by the court for the the job seekers here would potentially have sort of broad impacts and, and tie the state's hands in a range of prosecutions involving other sorts of fraud with other sorts of defendants unrelated to this immigration employment context. What's the the counterargument for why that broad sweep wouldn't occur? Well, I think that you know we're talking about immigration and the use of the state immigration laws to enforce the federal immigration laws. And states can do that only to the extent permitted by Congress. In cases that don't involve uh, immigration, I don't see Kansas versus Garcia having much of an impact. Uh, in, the, in the standard identity fraud case, uh, you're not going to have immigration consequences uh, flowing from um, a, a conviction. You're, you're involved in this case where the state is, is trying to increase the enforcement of the immigration laws uh, in a way that the, that the federal government didn't uh, by imposing these criminal sanctions as, as applied in this case on Mr. Garcia. So I think that the, the parade of horribles uh, the state presents uh, is a little bit of uh, argumentative hyperbole, uh, and they were also rejected uh, by the Kansas Supreme Court, uh, which I would think has the interests of Kansas at heart, uh, as well as uh, the need to comply with federal law. Okay. Uh, Dean, Kevin Johnson from UC Davis School of Law. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Before regarding our last case, Hernandez v. Mesa, just one more reminder that you are invited to receive CLE for having listened to this Daily Journal podcast. Just find it at dailyjournal.com. And also, while you're there, there are plenty of other CLE options available to help you 
satisfy your continuing legal education credit. Okay, the case of Hernandez versus Mesa is back before the court for a second time. It involves a volley of lethal gunfire shot across the southern border by an American officer who was standing on the U.S. side. The bullet struck and killed Sergio Hernandez, a 15-year-old on the Mexican side, who was playing with friends. At issue in the case is whether that action gives Hernandez's parents the ability to seek relief in a U.S. court under the U.S. Constitution. More specifically, the court is considering whether the parents are eligible for a Bivens remedy. Bivens relief is granted to plaintiffs where there's no specific federal statute providing a right to sue federal actors or the U.S. government, but where the right violated is so important that the court has read as implied the possibility of relief into the Constitution. Attorneys for Hernandez's parents and supporting Amici, including our next guest, Professor Gregory Sisk, argue that Bivens remedy is their only legal option because the closest relevant statute, the Federal Tort Claims Act, forbids recovery for harms occurring abroad. Sisk also argues a more recent law, the Westfall Act, blocks plaintiffs like those here from suing in state court. Thus, because Hernandez's parents have no other alternative, Sisk argues the court should be inclined towards providing a Bivens remedy here. The government and opposing Amici, like Larry Joseph, who we'll hear from after Professor Sisk, insist other possible remedies do exist, like diversity actions in federal court or potential state torts. First, I'm happy to bring onto the show now Professor Gregory Sisk from the University of St. Thomas School of Law. Professor, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Uh, the thrust of, of your brief here centers around the argument that the, the parents here of the deceased Sergio Hernandez uh, have no other remedy than a Bivens one. Walk me through the, the main arguments for why that's the case, why there's no other legal alternative here. Sure. To begin with, I wish there was an alternative. It's, it, this is not a situation in which I'm trying to argue that there are no alternatives uh, and thereby defeat the claim, but rather pointing out that because there are no alternatives, the only remedy available uh, to this family is through the implication of a Bivens constitutional uh, tort cause of action. Um, so in this situation involving a Border Patrol agent who is a law enforcement officer, under many circumstances, the United States uh, would be liable for torts committed by a law enforcement officer under the Federal Tort Claims Act, uh, which uh, waives the sovereign immunity of the federal government for ordinary tort claims. In this circumstance, however, there's an exception to the FDCA that applies uh, for incidents that have their effect in a foreign country. And so a claim against the United States government is not available. Now, in other circumstances, uh, say involving state officers, even if a claim against the state government was not available, there might still be a uh, state tort law claim against the individual officer. But in this case, Congress enacted a special statute referred to as the Westfall Act, which provides that for federal employees who are acting within the scope of employment at the time of the incident, they receive immunity from tort liability. Uh, so any other form of substantive claim that could be brought uh, against an individual, federal employees have that immunity uh, as long as they uh, were acting within the scope of employment. The only exception to that immunity is for a constitutional-based claim. And so once again, that brings us back to the only remedy available here is a Bivens constitutional tort claim if the court is willing to allow that to go forward. Just to pull out a, a couple of um, counterarguments that are in the, the opposing filing, maybe onto that second point that you mentioned how a state court could be brought, but there's immunity created by the Westfall Act for officers acting within the scope of their employment. I think one argument the government raises is that the plaintiffs could have 
argued in Texas court that this action was outside of the scope of the officer's immunity, and so there would be a decent argument there. This is a 15-year-old um, sort of playing a game of chicken in the border zone there, so it didn't seem like maybe that sort of action was within the scope of normal duties. So why isn't that argument persuasive? My my expectation is that the uh, argument that he was not acting within the scope of employment wasn't raised because it wasn't a plausible argument. Um, the determination of whether a federal officer is acting within the scope of employment uh, turns on the state law involved, uh, which here I presume would be Texas. Uh, and uh, the question then would turn on Texas respondeat superior law, the same analysis that uh, you would apply uh, for an employee of a private corporation, uh, for example. Uh, and given that this Border Patrol officer was, in fact, acting as a Border Patrol officer, was sweeping the uh, the border, uh, policing the border at the time this incident occurred, uh, it, it uh, strikes me likely that any court would have concluded he was acting within the scope of employment. The fact that the in, that the particular act that he performed of uh, shooting and killing an armed, unarmed uh, a child uh, is an extreme departure from that doesn't necessarily take it outside of the scope of employment uh, scenario. Be a very different setting, I suppose, if we were talking about a uh, a truck driver who, quite to everyone's surprise, suddenly pulled out a gun and shot somebody. Uh, but with a Border Patrol agent who's authorized to use force when appropriate uh, to be uh, uh, carrying a firearm and to use that firearm in the course of, of duty, uh, it's unlikely that took it outside of the scope of employment. Okay. And then um, one other argument that I think has been raised in amicus briefs, including by uh, one amicus that listeners will hear from, Larry Joseph, his argument goes that the FTCA didn't altogether displace just a traditional diversity action that, that could have been brought or could be brought by folks like the plaintiffs here. Um, you've written quite a bit about the FTCA. Why, uh, in your view, is that argument not persuasive? Um, I, I have read uh, the APA Watch uh, amicus brief, uh, and once again, I'm in the awkward position of wishing that what was said in that brief was correct, because I do think that the uh, most uh, uh, appropriate measure here would be for Congress to allow this type of claim to be brought uh, through ordinary tort mechanisms. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think the brief is correct, uh, and I don't think the court will uh, accept those arguments. First, uh, I, I, I must confess I don't understand the argument about uh, uh, it doesn't preempt a, a diversity uh, of citizenship or a uh, cause of action uh, because diversity of citizenship is a jurisdictional provision. It's a jurisdictional pigeonhole. It doesn't create any cause of action. Uh, it simply create, uh, provides for a federal forum. Uh, and once you're in the federal forum, you still run into the immunity that's provided by uh, the Westfall Act. The uh, other argument that I saw in that brief, which which is an interesting one, but I think in the end doesn't uh, fit either the text and it's foreclosed by Supreme Court precedent, uh, is to point out that the reason that the FTCA is not available in this case is because of an exception to the FTCA. And that part of the statute provides that if an exception applies, then the whole uh, chapter of the statute doesn't apply. And interestingly, the Westfall Act is a part of that same uh, chapter. Uh, so the argument then is if an exception to the FTCA applies, uh, then ipso facto, the Westfall Act is also uh 
shut down and uh, the immunity disappears in a state, uh, or in this case, a uh, perhaps a, a Mexican uh, uh, tort cause of action could go forward against the individual officer. That argument uh, is an interesting one. Uh, I think it runs into two obstacles. The first is that the exception of the FDCA doesn't apply until after the Westfall Act has already uh, uh, taken place. So in terms of timing, in a situation such as this, if you asserted a claim directly against the individual uh, officer, uh, then immediately uh, the Westfall Act uh, takes uh, effect, the immunity is in place, the United States is substituted as the sole defendant under the FDCA, and then only after that do we find that the FDCA exception means that there's no claim against the United States either. Uh, and the, the second problem is the Supreme Court has repeatedly said uh, that the fact that the FDCA is not available against the United States because of these exceptions does not reinstate immunity uh, for the individual uh, federal employee. The individual federal employee enjoys the substantive immunity of the Westfall Act uh, regardless of whether the United States, after being substituted as the defendant, uh, is able to assert exceptions under the FTCA. So that that argument has already been foreclosed by the Supreme Court's decisions. Uh, one thing that the the opposing briefs do seem to agree on is is that just because there is no alternative legal remedy other than a Bivens action doesn't necessarily mean such a Bivens action must be granted, though the side sort of disagree as to I guess, how much it matters whether there's some other option for plaintiffs. So how, what's the best way in your view to, to think of, for folks to think of, you know, how much it should uh, determine a, a court's consideration, whether, you know, if we stipulate the fact that there is no other alter- alternative for plaintiffs such as those here? Well, there there's always the extraordinary extrajudicial uh, remedy, I, I suppose, of, of asking Congress to pass private bill uh, compensation. Uh, that uh, is a process that has been used at points in American history for compensating those who've been injured by uh, the acts of the government. The prospect that an individual from a foreign country with no easy regular ties to the United States can obtain the attention of a majority of the Congress to enact legislation that the president then would sign providing for compensation, uh, I think demonstrates that that is not a very likely usable remedy uh, in most uh, uh, circumstances. So, and it certainly is not the type of judicial compensatory remedy that the Supreme Court has talked about in terms of alternatives uh, to Bivens. In the cases where the Supreme Court has found that there is an alternative remedy, it has pointed to other types of uh, compensatory judicial remedies, uh, uh, such as uh, the availability of state tort law claims or some type of administrative relief claim. Uh, and it does not appear that any of those are available uh, in this scenario. The, the last sort of piece of this is that in thinking about extending a Bivens action, so perhaps the potential alternative of other remedies goes into the equation, but also there are a handful of other sort of special factors that are um, thought about by courts. Um, can you give me just a, a brief rundown of those additional factors that are at play and how they um, are how they act in, in this case? I think the, 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 the typical example of a special factor that counsels hesitation in 
uh, implying a Bivens remedy has been the military context. Uh, the, the Supreme Court has been reluctant uh, to become involved in second-guessing military discipline decisions, uh, operations of the military uh, by use of uh, state tort law remedies uh, or, or remedies that are equivalent to, uh, to, to uh, state tort law. Uh, and so I, I think that's the, the, the typical scenario. The court has emphasized that the military is a specialized uh, community, uh, operates uh, in, in a chain of command discipline that is not replicated elsewhere in society and is something very different. Here, I, I could imagine that the government uh, will contend, as they have, that uh, uh, this case uh, implicates foreign policy, it implicates national security, uh, I, and one can certainly postulate scenarios in which the interactions of the Border Patrol uh, would implicate foreign policy or national security it's hard to see that those implications are present in a case, simple scenario in which a child playing uh, uh, tag uh, in in a border area is shot and killed by a border patrol officer. Uh, that seems rather a stretch in in my mind. The the other aspect of this, which the court has emphasized, and and uh, is that Bivens itself is a judicial creation. Uh, there are other uh, briefs filed in this case, including those by the. Uh, the petitioner and other uh, uh, amicus briefs that argue that the Congress has effectively uh, recognized a Bivens, uh, e even through the exception of the Westfall Act. Uh, but the court has seen it otherwise and seen it as a uh, uh, an extension by the judiciary to protect uh, constitutional rights. To the extent that that's a correct analysis, my contention here is this is the exceptional type of case in which a Bivens remedy is really demanded. When you're talking about the arbitrary, senseless killing of a child by a federal employee, uh, as, as we said in our amicus brief, uh, this is a scenario in which uh, uh, you're seeing the very difference between a dictatorship and a constitutional republic. Uh, uh, Wilmer Cutler, which uh, uh, prepared the, the brief on my behalf, I think states it very well that the signal distinction between a constitutional republic such as we have and in, in abject tyranny is the arbitrary taking of human life. That's exactly what we have here. If the Constitution speaks to nothing else in terms of uh, a constitutional tort remedy, it certainly should apply when there has been such a senseless and arbitrary taking of a child's life. Okay. Uh, Professor Gregory Sisk from University of St. Thomas School of Law. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Finally, Larry Joseph, who submitted a brief on behalf of the APA Watch in this case, is here to discuss why, in his view, there are other alternatives to the plaintiffs like those in this case. Larry, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so a, a central claim here um, from the plaintiffs and, and petitioner is that if a Bivens remedy is not crafted, a constitutional damage claim against this federal officer, that there is no other legal resort for the surviving parents of deceased here. So your brief argues the opposite, that there are other legal options. What uh, what are those options? My answer to that has to do with the presumption against repeals uh, by implication. That's like when something exists under current law, Congress makes a new law that doesn't say one way or the other, doesn't address the other issue. Courts are loath to interpret the new law as repealing by implication, impliedly repealing the prior law. So when the Federal Tort Claims Act was enacted, before that, the 
someone injured in a foreign country by a U.S. actor uh, could sue in a U.S. court that would have jurisdiction over the actor, and they could. There's a choice of law thing that a you know court exercising jurisdiction under tort law would look to you know various factors. There's different tests, but the court would decide. Well, am I going to apply Mexican law in this case or or, or Texas law? I believe the answer would be Mexican law. But so that something that could happen before 1946, before there was a Federal Torts Claims Act. And then there's a series of amendments. First of all, the FTCA itself, then the Westfall Act in in 1988. And what what the Westfall Act does is it says that that tort, the the FTCA remedy, the, the ability to sue the government under the FTCA, that is an exclusive remedy. So it makes that FTCA remedy exclusive. It used to be one of, you know, many arrows in your quiver. Westfall made it the only one. But there's an important couple of words in the in the FTCA that says two, one, two things. One, one, the FTCA doesn't apply to injuries that arise abroad. So that would rule this out because the injury occurred in Mexico. But two, the whole all these exceptions don't apply at all, uh, or they only apply to the extent that the FTCA FTCA itself applies. So basically, the exclusivity provision. That's what the plaintiff's site and, and their amici site as the basis for saying there's, you can't sue uh, in a regular old diversity action. Diversity meaning you're from Texas, I'm from Mexico, we're diverse as our citizenships. So the um, the exclusivity provision doesn't apply here because one of the exclusions, the the extra, uh, they're arising abroad uh, provision kicks it out. So the whole FTCA is out, including the exclusivity. So that leaves us back where we were before the FTCA, FTCA's adoption then that's a pretty clear argument uh, if it weren't for some decisions. Now, there was a decision in in 91, the Smith decision, that basically rejects that argument, kind of. Uh, It rejects, or it uh, it says that there's no diversity jurisdiction doesn't survive. But what it didn't do is it didn't even look at that language that said the FTCA exclusions only apply to cases in which the FTCA itself applies. And so if that were where we were, my argument would be maybe a good academic argument, but unlikely to prevail. Fortunately for my side, in uh, Simmons in 2016, the Supreme Court realized that the Smith decision from 91 didn't even look at the key language that, you know, the provisions of this chapter shall not apply. And so it excludes the whole chapter, the whole FTCA. And so I think, or, or I hope that the court would look at Simmons and Smith and the FTCA exclusion and say, you know what, there is an alternate remedy. And we're not re- we shouldn't be addressing a the Constitution, but b especially the extraterritorial Constitution. You don't go, you don't jump to that constitutional step if there's the possibility of uh, relief uh, under another mechanism, and that's even part of the Bivens framework. And so this particular uh, border agent. And my clients are, uh, you know, sort of agree that there shouldn't be a Bivens here yet, or maybe ever. But it's uh, the same border agent shooting uh, from New York into Ontario would have a different result under my uh, analysis because the Ontario victim would be able to sue in a New York state, a New York state or federal court in diversity jurisdiction, and would be able to assert Ontario law and could could well recover. And say, hey, look, the FTCA doesn't apply to me. So the the brief that I filed doesn't help every border agent everywhere, 
but it does help this border agent in Texas because not because um, of any failings of Texas law or U.S. law, but because Canadian law, which comes from the British crown or the English crown, I suppose I should say, down through their colonial history like ours, um, is different from Mexican law, which comes down from the Spanish crown and their colonial history. England was just a lot better at protecting the rights of individuals from the rights of government. Um, that's our tradition. That's the Commonwealth country's tradition. And that's really what I'm trying to protect with the APA Watch Brief is if the government injures a Commonwealth citizen in a Commonwealth country, they ought to be able to sue where that U.S. actor lives in federal or state court and assert the Commonwealth law. If you go to London and punch someone in the nose, they ought to be able to come to where you live, California, I guess, and sue you in California federal court uh, under English law for the assault. What is the provision then of uh, Mexican law that would render the plaintiffs here out of luck. So you're saying they could bring a diversity well, tort. That, that, so good. I'm sorry, and I'm sorry to interrupt. So basically, the thing that would make it different or possibly different for, for the Mexican plaintiff is that they never got to that step. The, the, they, they started out in federal court saying, give us Bivens because of exclusivity. We don't have the ability to sue under, they want to sue under Texas law. In the prior iteration in the um, Mesa case in the Supreme Court, it was before the court before, the uh, Mexican lawyers uh, did an amicus brief, and I'm relying on them as to what Mexican law is or isn't. But they're not they're not a court. They're they're just telling us what it, they're giving us an idea of what's likely to happen. They didn't have a holding, obviously. And so what they're suggesting is, or what they suggested prior iteration before the Supreme Court, is that the, the, the agent Mesa would be immune. So the reason we don't think that the Mexicans uh, would prevail under the process I'm suggesting is an amicus brief that was filed in the prior iteration in the Supreme Court uh, in the Mesa case. But that's really not something we know. That's something an amicus said. Amiki can be wrong. You're having a call with two amiki and they're saying different things. One of us is clearly wrong. So um, what needs to happen from an orderly uh, procedure standpoint is the case, the court the Supreme Court shouldn't jump to Bivens because that involves interpreting the Constitution um, until they know that there's not another remedy. So they need to go back to uh, a lower court. It could be the Fifth Circuit. It could be the district court and try to, to, to assert a claim under Mexican substantive law. And that that's their remedy. They don't want I mean, I think I think there is some remedy. But again, I'm not a Mexican lawyer and I have no idea. And the plaintiffs don't want this. They want the, they want you to sue under U.S. law. Uh, be it Texas or Bivens. They don't really much care, I imagine, but they don't want Mexican law, which isn't as, as friendly, um, I believe, according to this past um, Amex brief uh, from the prior uh, iteration in the case. It's, Mexican law isn't as favorable to the plaintiff as U.S. law. And that's, I think, a reflection of Spain versus um, England as a colonial power. And then, obviously, um, you know, Mexico is a sovereign country now. They can change its law if it wants to. My understanding is that it's not that friendly to plaintiffs, um, but I don't I don't know that. But the point is, the Supreme Court shouldn't be interpreting the Constitution yet until they go back and try just a diversity action under Mexican law. So that would be essentially a, a wrongful death tort brought in. Yeah, Texas. right, right, right. Okay, and then just in the the case that in fact another alternative remedy is is not available something along the lines of what you described is not available to the plaintiffs here you say nonetheless extending bivens to cover this sort of case is still wrong um, even if it's their only sort of shot tell me about that argument right the supreme court's cases look at 
two criteria for Bivens. Uh, is there an alternate remedy? And then do special factors counsel the, the, the court not creating one? And as appellate lawyers know, there's actually a, a, an implied first step, which is the uh, does the court have jurisdiction? So it's do we have jurisdiction? Is there an ultimate remedy? And are there any special factors that counsel against uh, extending the relief? The original Bivens case relies on Bell versus Hood, which basically was a both of those were federal question cases. So they were cases in the lower courts under federal question jurisdiction, and we are all used to federal question jurisdiction. Uh, it used to have an amount in controversy requirement, I think, through 1980. It actually didn't even exist. Federal question uh, jurisdiction didn't even exist until 1875. So it's not something that the framers thought necessarily had to exist because it didn't exist for essentially the first century of our, our, our national history. And so what we're talking about here isn't the reach of Article Three uh, of the Constitution that goes to cases and controversies, which maybe extends you know, a few feet into Mexico because of this ambiguous border situation. But the federal question statute, first of all, it didn't exist. They couldn't have done this in 1874 or prior because there was no federal question statute to do it under. But that federal question statute, you interpret that in light of what Congress meant. So in other words, federal courts can't do whatever they want under the federal constitution. I'm sorry, the federal, any federal law, law, constitution, whatever. They can only do what Congress has allowed them to do. That's how far federal question jurisdiction extends. And that's not extraterritorial. That's, there's plenty of statements by Congress and by the Supreme Court in, the, in that early era that say the Constitution doesn't apply abroad. And that's what they're trying to do here. So I would argue either that there's no right, there's no right to sue under U.S. law because U.S. law doesn't extend to where this injury occurred, or that even if there were, other, and that's the, the Supreme Court's call, they can say where they can draw the lines, as they did in the Boumediene case, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, they can say that at least the suspension clause applies to Guantanamo Island, Guantanamo Bay Naval Station, or whatever it's called. But Congress never gave the lower federal courts the ability to step across the border, even if the Supreme Court wants to interpret that it has that right. Congress never gave that to the lower federal courts. And so the, the, there's no basis for extending Bivens uh, abroad because there's no federal question jurisdiction for it. Um, I mean, I should point out that, again, my interest here, I, I'm not fighting for or against the plaintiff or the defendant. I'm trying to defend the rights of citizens of Commonwealth countries and other sort of what I'll call rule of law countries, where if someone did a tort against them in their, in their country, they could sue that person in their country, or they could bring a diversity action in our country where the, the defendant in this hypothetical thing uh, would live, they could bring a, a, a tort against the defendant here and seek to apply through choice of law principles the law, their country, of where the tort occurred. And where, when those rule of law countries or commonwealth countries have those robust uh, provisions, then I want to be sure that they, they, they're not thrown out of remedy along with, along with uh, either the Mr. Hernandez here, who, I mean, the, what would be terrible in my view, because there's a lot of cross-border shootings, and sometimes it's crossfire. And so it's someone further away from the border than, than, than um, Mr. Hernandez was. And so those people wouldn't be helped. I mean, this is, this is a very narrow victory that they're trying to get, and their, their uh, motivation is clearly self-interest. But it's a, it would be a small victory for Mexicans, because it wouldn't extend very far into Mexico. It wouldn't 
involve some of the cross-border shootings that are in the record where they weren't standing within a few feet of the border. And so those other people wouldn't be helped. And if that if that remedy were extended to this sort of narrow border area, then um, that means my Commonwealth rule of law country, the people I'm trying to protect, would also, they would lose their rights because they're not being injured close to the border. And, and you know, more importantly, again, this goes back to the alternate remedy question too. Congress never intended to displace that remedy that's, again, in our Constitution, diversity jurisdiction is in our Constitution, and it was in the first Judiciary Act. So these are foundational principles that, that I'm arguing, and the stuff that comes later, the Federal Tort Claims Act and the exclusivity provisions of the 1988 amendments, those are minor compared to the um, foundational concept of rule of law and diversity jurisdiction. I uh, I don't know that extending the remedy to this one plaintiff helps very many people uh, in this narrow border area, not even in Mexico. And I, and I do know that it would hurt many people around the world if in finding, because in order to, to find a remedy for him, they have to say there's no other remedy. And it's that saying of no other remedy that I'm trying to avert. Larry Joseph, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. That's our show for October 7th, 2019, the first Monday in October. It's our first of four Supreme Court previews, so be sure to stay tuned over the coming days for additional episodes about business law cases, civil rights matters, and criminal law appeals. For now, I just want to say one more time thank you to all six of my guests today, Mark Rosenbaum, Josh Blackman, Lou Olowski, Kevin Johnson, Gregory Sisk, and Larry Joseph. And thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget, claim one hour of CLE credit for having tuned into the podcast. I'd also like to thank my production staff here, principally Henrik Nilsson and Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you tomorrow. Have a great day.